This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project where I talk with artists about their work and their lives. The ultimate goal here is to give listeners a better understanding about the experiences and people behind the artwork. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, straight on, and unscripted. This episode profiles Andrew Quo. Andrew makes colorful geometric paintings alongside more representational works that might depict a basketball player, a bouquet of flowers, or atmospheric fields of color. His geometric paintings include a section of thoughtfully written sentences that operate like a key, almost like a legend on a map, and specifically quantify each fragmented shape and color choice, which offers viewers overt instructions on how to interpret his artistic intent. The work is full of dynamic visual rhythms, heartbreaking humor, and underscores an interest in how we organize, measure, and present ourselves as complex individuals. We recorded the following conversation at his studio in the Bed-Stuy section of Brooklyn. I thought a good place to start was how I came to know you. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because we've known each other for over 20 years, by my calculations. That's wild. 94. 95 yeah and i want to see if my recollection of meeting you lines up with your recollection of meeting me okay so we went to school together that's right i think we met on literally the first day of school because we lived on the same hallway yeah like two doors apart from each other Uh uh-huh and you had the coveted single room i had i can't believe i got somehow you got that and i remember just sort of like anxiously walking through the hallways <laughs> like holy shit like right. and providence was a big city for me from uh uh considering yeah. where i grew up like New i Hampshire, was like right? yeah this is like a big huge city and i don't know anyone and yeah and i remember your door was open and i was like hey how's it going and yeah. it was like classic andrew you had you had on um like a zip zip hoodie <laughs> and i and i think you're like, hey, I'm Andrew. Come on in. And yeah. you you were going through a box of zines that you had just had shipped to you. Oh, right. Somehow it like landed like the first week of school that, or something. Oh, that's right. That's right. And you pulled them out, and it was like a I don't remember the name of it, but it was like a black and white, um, just staple bound thing. That's right. Yes. And right. I think it was mostly about music mm-hmm. or like short stories and essays from yeah. friends or like related to shows that you had seen music shows and I remember the design it was pretty spartan um but really sophisticated black and white and there wasn't like a lot of fancy like type treatment or anything like that it was like straight on and um but really well organized um and that was my introduction to you and we right. actually we sort of leafed through it and you were telling me about it and I was right. like this is cool because my experience with zines was was not great growing up right. from where I did but um does that do you remember that I do all? remember <laughs> that and I was right and I think it's all coming back to me now but it was a zine that I was basically my whole high school like life hmm. I was obsessed with it and um did those, it have a name yeah it, was, it started originally about this band super chunk yeah, yeah yeah and so it's called trash heap which was one of my favorite songs of theirs and I remember I had just finished that issue and there was a delay in the printing of it and I had it sent to me in Providence when I was moving in. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were all laid out with um, rubber cement and like cut out type that, mm-hmm. you know, I would print an entire interview out on sheets of paper and then cut them out and lay oh, them out okay. onto pages. So com- like very analog. 
totally analog. I was I was just going to assume you were, you were you like laid it out in Quark or something like that. It was way before. I mean, I was at RISD <laughs> to learn Quark. Okay. You know? <laughs> but um, yeah, that was f- that issue. I think was all like high school memories of all the bands I can get a hold of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember the big interview in that zine was Codeine, this slowcore band from New York City that I was really obsessed with. Um, but kind of like the same characters would pop up in that, in that, um, magazine, every issue, right. I would just kind of contact the same guys who would talk to me. Right. But I remember I was so excited for Providence coming from New York cause it felt like a lot was happening there already with like Fort Thunder mm-hmm. and um, Drop Dead, Hydrogen Terrors, like uh, Load Records. I was mm-hmm. super excited to um, just kind of like jump all over that scene. And I remember when we met, I think, and then later on, our, our mutual friend Ryan, I think like hosted everyone in his room. Yeah, his room kind of turned into a, like kind of like the after hour spot right. in a way. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about uh, Ryan Wallace, who's yeah. who's been on this show, the first guest on your show, yeah. dear friend who uh, runs a great gallery and is a great artist. But he, yeah, his room turned into the clubhouse, and subsequently, you guys became roommates, and your house turned into the clubhouse. That's right. Yeah, like as soon as we were able to leave the dormitory. That's right. That's right. Um, I know this. Those are like some deep cuts. <laughs> uh, uh, um, yeah, I, I guess I wanted to like bring up the zine thing because the like how I know you and sort of the, the 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 arc of your work and how you've made work. I go back to that introduction of you and sort of like how you were making things through that zine. And I know sort of independent publishing and self-published projects are huge for you. Yeah. Um, and I guess maybe I wanted to try and walk through the development of your work as I experienced it uh-huh. from that first zine into some of the things that you were doing at school. You were, you were studying design at school, correct? I, I was in design right. for a few years and then, um, I kind of shifted all my attention to printmaking. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I remember, um, your, your like very sharp graphic design projects that you're doing, but then I saw like this interdisciplinary, muscle in you and like leaping to other departments not to like take formal classes just to you were just hanging out and utilizing equipment and studio spaces and i remember very vividly you spending a lot of time in the printmaking department so much so that i think a lot of people below us were like oh andrew's in the printmaking department no Um, (laughs) you just loved it there and you thrived in there so i remember a lot of your work um just connected to printing and mm-hmm. screen printing and I remember you making flyers and posters for local bands or parties or shows mm-hmm. um, and they and then your posters became became these coveted things that we'd all want a copy of for our archive um, and then I remember after school uh-huh. you um, jumped right back down to New York yeah. and you're doing graphic to design work with your brother right and it was like a little boutique design shop you guys were running. Right. Doing mostly print design. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I saw this great marriage of a couple of your interests with, you know, print design and layout and organizing things in a certain way. And your interest in sports because you were doing a lot of stuff for um, ESPN magazine at That's the time. That's right. Yeah, um, yeah. And that was really cool to see. I was like, Andrew's figured out how to marry two of the things he's really interested in professionally and like earn something that resembles a living through mm-hmm. that. Then from there, I remember 
you started using, or I started to see you screen print onto canvases and mm -hmm. paper and like present your ideas and what you're thinking about as objects on the wall. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember one of your first shows in a space downtown, I think it was connected to V Magazine or something. That's right. They gave me my first yeah. show. What was that, like 2001? Uh-huh. It was at the Visionaire Gallery yeah. on, what was it, Green Street yeah. or one of those streets. Um, it's still there, but they had a huge gallery in front for a while. Uh -huh. And yeah, they asked me to do a show. And I remember that was the first time I'd screen printed onto canvas. Yeah, that's what I remember. It was like these screen printed canvas pieces. And I remember yeah. the, the gallery had like curved walls or curved yeah. corners. It was curvilinear. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of like an interesting <laughs> choice, architectural choice on their yeah. part. But um, And then from there, uh, I remember at a certain point, the, the blog entering the stratosphere, the, oh. Earl, the Earl Boykins blog spot. That's right. And then, then the, like the, 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 the charts and graphics and like sort of charting out different ideas visually, um, whether it was like, uh, something personal that happened to you or connected to some Knicks game, for example, or, uh, again, back to music shows. Yep. So I remember experiencing work through that, especially during my office job when I would just like surf the web and I check Earl Boykins right. blogs popping out. And then I started to see, um, those charts show up in your paintings or what, what you were defining as paintings at the time. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, I want to say, I'm going on and on about no, this no, arc. No, no. <laughs> yeah. So, so I hope it's yeah. accurate so far. Yeah, yeah, no, you're, you're on. Uh, um, then you started doing pieces for the New York Times, mm -hmm. those, those charts, mm -hmm. um, graphic charts, um, with, you know, there's, I think there's a direct connection between those and obviously the stuff you're making now. Mm -hmm. Um, and in the midst of it all, you're making stuff and showing it and show and galleries and, and getting them into like project spaces and things like that. And I feel like that arc has led us led into what you're making now, which are like these much more, um, they're, 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 the scales upped, the information, both shape, color and everything is more, the, the writing that's connected to them is more and, and, uh, broader, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I wanted to ask if that sort of matches how, how it was yeah. for you, the maker, as the guy who just, like, observed all this over the course of 20 years, yeah. I guess we'd say. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, definitely. And what what I always, well, what I'm thinking about now that we're, we're talking about it is I had such a, a linear idea going into art school and becoming an art, wanting to become an artist in New York about how to do it, you know, because we've seen so many people, you know, study everything before you yeah. at, at the time wherever you're at and on when I hear or I think about it like that like you just described it's just a roundabout way to get to a point yeah um, you know I always used to go to galleries and museum shows with my mom and you know she'd be like well you have to get you know you're a young man eventually maybe this and I took you know I interned at when I was a teenager, I interned at like Electro Records. I did stuff for Bad Boy, and mm -hmm. like I thought design was a way to um, marriage my my father's demand that I be a writer mm -hmm. and my mother's demand that I be a visual, some sort yeah. of artist. And and it it's a roundabout way, and I don't know if it would work for me again the second time around. Hmm. But I've kind of stumbled onto a lot of great people who helped me. Um, 
find out what I really want to do right. and give me the space to do it, which is in New York, I think the biggest luxury is space, mm-hmm. not only to create like a space to make things physically, but just somebody to let you go. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I would, I would throw time in there too. Time, space and time, yeah, time to sure. like focus on it and figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I like like pointing out the 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 arc and it, I the way I described it was a straight line, but I don't think it you probably didn't experience it like that. There were some dips and things with like what you were doing and how the work was landing. Yeah. But to draw the connection between what you're doing now and the work that I first saw right. in 1995, right. I see a connection. Yeah, yeah. And I just sort of walked tried to walk through it. Yeah. Um, and I guess why I wanted to yeah. point that out. Oh, definitely. Um, um so you know, I think some people that listen to this, um, these recordings will know your work and, and know a little bit about you. I'd like to think a lot of other people, this is all new information. So yeah. I want to take a second to try and describe the stuff that you make. Um, and then um, I'll see, well, I'll, I'll check in to make sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> it works. Go for it. Or, or you, you sign <laughs> off, you co-sign on it. But um, you, you're, you're a painter and you make a few different types of paintings. I think the ones that I'm looking at right behind you right now are these chart paintings that are heavy on uh, graphic edges and angles and uh, composition in, uh, with how these diagonals and squares, kind of the armature of a rectangle, is like broken down and built back up. And then you're, 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 you have a legend or a key at the bottom of each of them that 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 gives the viewer some um, information on how to read each shape and each color. So there's a there's a correlation between the color pink and the sentence that's next to it, and therefore it gives the viewer an understanding of what that pink specifically means above it in the in the in the chart. And maybe char- I don't know that chart's a fair word because these 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 charts are are like. I feel like when you when when I hear the word chart, it's something that's kind of straight on and clear and like very easy to sort of take in instantly. These are not that. These are much, much more fragmented, and they're they're asking of the viewer to like spend time and like sort through it. Um, and there there there's also just like so much shape and color. Well, usually it's like a handful of colors, but there's there's like the, the rhythm from thing to thing is a lot. And, you know, I don't think would be efficient in like a, a boardroom chart for some no, business no. or something like that, right? Um, so that's one type of painting you make. Then you also make these sort of, sort of gestural blurry abstractions. Um, you also make portrait paintings. And then I know, I haven't seen you make one in a while, but you did floral paintings based off of photographs that you took mm-hmm. of like corner store um, bodega flowers on your phone and you just look at the phone and make, make a painting from that image reference. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a fair sort of description of your work? Would you say? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 What, what do people over, is there something that people overlook when they, when they talk to you about your work? Like, I wish this would be, be in the front of this thing that other people often bring up. Is there something that sort of you'd like to nudge up in there? I guess I'm always wondering what I'm overlooking. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, everyone has their inside thoughts when they present an idea, whether it be about art or uh, whatever. But 
visually, um, whatever I can, whatever the painting looks like it is, you know, and I, I try not to fight that. Um, I always think about um, content that maybe I wish I would make more clear mm -hmm. sometimes and um, in the words and in the writing, especially about my identity and where I'm from. Right. And um, I'm Asian American and a lot of times it's never mentioned. And mm -hmm. I'm like, well, this is kind of, has everything to do with, you know, where I'm from, right. like the idea of displacement, um, statistics, you know, all that immigration stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, that's okay, you know, because it, if it doesn't come through clear enough, then that's my job. Huh. And if I am not getting an idea through, it's either something that's blocking me up or if the work's not doing its job. Hmm. And that's something I fight with all the time. And these things are far from finished in my mind in the sense that like they can always be clearer and more concise. Mm -hmm. Even if that um, idea, that concise idea is confusion, mm -hmm. you know? Um, it's interesting you talk about you're just bringing up trying to even be or trying to be more clear. Yeah. I mean, I think your works are really quite generous in, in offering someone instructions on how to take these in and not many artists working today are that sharing or transparent. Um, you know, like, you know, the sociological aspect of your work, whether it's like um, something that you experience in, in, a, in a sentence and how that correlates visually for you and, and the color that you choose to represent that, like the storytelling mm -hmm. and the narrative that you're creating in these. Um, it's funny that you're like thinking about trying to even make that more clear. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you know, that clarity may not be a singular, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. like um, I think my personality as a human being is one of like full of contradictions yeah. um, in a micro and macro level. And, these paintings, you know, I've always wanted to make things like that zine you talked about that yeah. were just uh, the most accurate snapshots of what I was like at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always been interested in that kind of this biographical kind yeah. of thing. But also now that we're in the age of like kind of shaky information, I've always been interested in that. Even uh, when I first started making that blog, being like, this show is great, but also not the best thing I've ever seen. Right. But compared to the worst, pretty great, right. you know. And yeah, you're you're quantifying stuff quantifying for yourself and for people that are reading. This. Constantly trying yeah. to find the mean of this cloud of micro thoughts. Mm -hmm. And um, right now, these paintings look complicated at first, but it's just about this this cloud of contradiction that mm -hmm. I try to work out with every painting. Yeah, um, I wrote down a couple of the things that um, you're you're charting out in your painting. I thought. Um, just to give listeners an example of sort of like your, your writing habits or sort of the prose that you take on. Um, and these are from, these are just samples from one of your paintings that was in your most recent show at Marlboro. Um, and, and I, I'm irresponsible. I didn't write down the name of the painting. Maybe you remember. I, I, I because, don't probably. <laughs> well, well, maybe this is a good spot to ask. Is the title of the painting important? contextually for the information you're reading about usually down below? usually okay. it's related and they're all dated okay so a lot of the paintings will repeat titles yeah but with different dates okay so uh just a uh, just a few from one painting there was like maybe 20 things you'd written but here's three sure the house where i grew up as uh is the average of all tv show sets and then you figured out how to like visually represent that right 
Uh, my favorite words and lines are the ones that just look nice. And then the last one is happiness as a kid was someone doing the talking for you. So, I mean, I guess that's like an example of, of a recent painting or the writing that's in one of the paintings and then how, you know, it's like, I just wanted to be clear because it's not like today I drank 10 glasses of Mountain Dew and you know, it's not that like, these are very like thoughtful, reflective things that you're, that you're, um, putting forward for us to, to read and then look at, um, and I guess I wanted to ask like where writing kind of like happens in the process and you know, how you sort of edit along the way. And, I, and I'm wondering about the parallels between writing or editing your writing and editing a painting or building a painting up and things like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've like, uh, you know, my father and my, both my father and mother were writers. So they really pushed me into that direction when I was, uh, you know, just starting to show interest in movies and comic books and, yeah. shit, you know, um, so text has always been important to me and the relationship between text and image. And um, a lot of the t- a lot of these texts or most of these texts are based off of um, like lately, especially lately, uh, like a lot of economic ideas and mm. like economic philosophies yeah. of um, like, you know. Like everyone else, I love all those Freakonomics guys yeah, yeah. and um, all those philosophy podcasts like On Being and um, ways to kind of frame these things that everyone experiences but in a different way. One of the most influential books I've ever read in my life, like a lot of people, uh, is Moneyball by yeah. um, Michael Lewis. Mm-hmm. And that's less about sports than it is about um, uh, putting uh, a market value on something that's devalued right and thinking yeah <laughs> basically basically it's or just like think harder yeah 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 you know if you think you've thought hard enough you haven't keep yeah. on going right or we have to fight our biases yeah i mean right because like the big strong guy i mean the sort of the premise of money balls like the big strong guy might not be the best or he fit, might be or he might be yeah. right it always checks itself but, yeah uh, yeah and so a lot of these things are, uh, a lot of my texts are about things that happen to me and a lot of them are like waiting for cook food to cook mm-hmm. or um, what, uh, finding little jokes in spots that kind of talk about value of that experience, mm-hmm. uh, whether that be about a memory of your childhood, if something reminds you of something else, a breakup, um, uh, death, all those things, yeah. you know, um, what happens after all of this and with a lens of um, this kind of economy thinking about economy and how it relates to quantifying it with like shapes, colors, volume. Mm -hmm. Um, And I try to make them all emotional. I mean, I don't even try. I just, I feel like I've always been drawn to that aspect of art. You know, my favorite movies are emotional. My favorite music is emotional. My favorite paintings are emotional. So it's hard for me to make work about, for example, like um, uh, politics or, um, something uh, outside of myself because I kind of only let myself critique myself. Sure, and you know it the best. I don't know politics the best. I'm not going to yeah. make work about it. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's yeah. part of it. I mean, as you know, as we all get older, I feel like we realize we know ourselves like probably not as well as <laughs> it's true. <laughs> our friends do. Yeah. Do you ever consider these portraits? I mean, the the chart paintings. I mean, they're not formal yeah. portraits with, with always. two eyes and a nose. But I mean, this is portraiture. Yes, always. Yeah. Um, like the whole cloud of this work when it finally is over, 
I would hope gives a viewer a sense of, you know, what the time was like, what I was like, mm-hmm. what it was like for someone like me. Yeah. Um, I'm always, and I've talked about this before, about how you make these because the process, and I hope you're comfortable sharing about it. Some people are protective and like, yeah, yeah it's kind of like, I'm not going to pull the curtain back that much. But, sure. um, I noticed a shift. Um, I think it was your show at maybe half gallery a few years ago. Um, and at that time you're still mounting paper onto panel Were those paper mounted panels. I, I believe, well, I used to mount a lot of paper, but I stopped because, um, I couldn't find flat paper big enough. Right. So I guess that that's the, the shift. Cause that's one, something that I riffed with you. It was like, how are you, how are you mounting your paper? Cause I, I mount paper in different ways in yeah. my stuff. Um, but now you're working directly on the canvas, mm-hmm. um, or linen, um, Maybe you could just talk about how these start through the middle to the end. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's kind of, I'm on, um, I'm on a constant, I'm constantly making these in the sense that I'm writing down ideas. If I'm, I'm just jotting things down on my phone that Mm -hmm. interest me. I always have an idea of visually what I want them to do. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll create a system and I only have like a, a bag of tricks of like seven or eight things that I'm, I'm interested in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll usually apply those sentences and what I mm-hmm. want visually to happen to these set of rules. And then I'll, I'll plug in the data and the data when I say data is like, uh, I had a bad day. So, okay. Yellow is a bad day. I had a good okay. day. A blue is a good day. And I plot it out and I see it. And if it looks like something I want to paint, I'll paint it. But if it doesn't, I'll start over and plug in more data right. into the, the um the system that i make for each painting right and is is when you say you plug it into something to see what it looks like is that digital or is it just like some a a picture you have in your head or is it on paper it's it's physical but when i say physical it's on the computer okay but i'm typing the words out and then i have to it's not like i click render and then it pops up i have to create the thing with arrows and points and squares so um, it's faster than drawing but it's not uh, an application. Sure, sure. No, it makes total sense to me, especially for how I know you as someone that like figured computers out and how to use them. But you know, back in the early '90s when we got our hands on them, and for you know, there's there's something about the flatness of these. And when you know when you when I see your work, you know, when I'm scrolling through, like there's one of Andrew's things. There's this like flip thing where I know you painted that, yeah. but it's it's registering as a digital image on my phone, and that right. sort of optic trick is pretty pretty cool. So that like back and forth from how I know you on computers and how I how I sort of understood you to like develop these in the beginning, almost like a sketch or mm-hmm. like uh, a system to realize the painted things. Mm-hmm. Um, it all makes sense. Yeah, I'm I'm always surprised sometimes how painterly these are mm-hmm. because in my mind they're such like they I, you know do you ever dream like of something and then in your mind you command z it you know it's just yeah like, yeah 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 or even in, uh, in when you're awake like it's like oh i didn't swipe fast enough command z you know yeah, yeah. Gonna, um so i always think of these things in terms of like um like this broad layout and then i'm always surprised when I make a mistake and it's always jarring. It's like, oh, this color's wrong. I can't just change it. This is mm-hmm. going to be two days of switching this color out or painting over it. Right. Um, but there, when you, I like the idea that on, on a screen, 
they look flat. I mean, flatness is my favorite thing yeah. in the world. Yeah. Flatness means, I mean, I sound so corny when I say this, but flatness means you're thinking about something. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're thinking about the way uh, someone else might see it. Sure. In relation to another thing. But, um, yeah, these things are messy and they have brush strokes. And the brush strokes are really important to the painting because they offer a directional cue. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're really, uh, there's a lot of paint that goes into them, mm-hmm. like uh, an incredible amount of like physical paint. Yeah, layers and layers. Yeah. And even before you get there, I guess, you know, we were talking about this one that's in progress right now. So you, you develop the, you work it out, and is that is that printout that's taped to your wall kind of a, a map for how to realize yeah, a so, painting? So, so right next to us is, is a painting that I'm in the middle of making that has all um, pencil lines of the rendering of the painting. And on my wall is a printout of another painting that I made. And I printed out the, the outlines for it and I dashed where the directional paint brush stroke should go in. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I commit to the, I have so many different like keys. It's sure. constantly keys. Yeah, yeah. I look, um, I look on my computer screen to find the color. Yeah. And I look on the printout to find the direction of what the brushstroke should go into, uh, the brushstroke directionally should be in, and the painting itself, like the bottom, mm-hmm. kind of um, is a key. Right. It's cool to see your key for making them, your key for making this thing that has a key in it for yeah. us to experience them. Right. It's right. kind of cool. Um, I mean, and, yeah. In you know, this is kind of a trippy idea, but I, you know, one of my favorite ideas is the simulation idea. You know where we're all in a simulation, which is funny, you know, um, and really fun to think about. And maybe that we're all computers in the sense that, you know, we have a binary set of rules that we follow in order to inform what we do. And these paintings, uh, they look like geometric abstractions, but they're actually like geometric figurative paintings. Hmm. There's no, there's no abstraction in there because the binary code on the bottom tells me what to do up top. Right, right, right. So if something looks good, but it's a mistake, I have to correct it yeah. to follow the rule. Yeah. I'm trying to think like my definitions for abstraction. Like when I use, like in, when I'm teaching my definition for what's an abstraction versus what's non-representational. Right. And I think if I remember someone taught me or I've read somewhere that an abstraction is, some, is something that was representat- representational at one time and then was abstracted from that mm-hmm. versus non-representational, like never was anything in the first place. Does that make sense? Oh God, this is a fan. Th- this reminds me of it, of the, is it a sandwich debate? <laughs> right. So a hot dog is not a sandwich yeah. because if you remove the bun, you still call it a hot dog. Yeah. But if you remove bacon, lettuce and tomato from a BLT, it's no longer a BLT. Huh? Right. Is that, it's kind of like, um, yeah, source, yeah source and 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 context yeah i'm sure my my little definitions there aren't accurate no no someone will pick apart i mean i really love like essays all the essays that have been written about color are amazing especially you know peter halley and and i always think about the ellsworth kelly quote like the color is the content Mm -hmm. well yes he's right and his he's one of my favorite and the best painters ever but what if i'm a person making paintings and I say the color is not the content mm-hmm. or the shape is not the content anymore. Yeah. But they look like 
I worship at the altar of Ellsworth Kelly, which I do, mm-hmm. but um, it's not, it's the opposite of his artist theme. Yeah, it's important to like take ownership of these things. Like the, we, we have, like it's our rules for these things in yeah. a certain way, right? Definitely. Um, I guess speaking of color, like so you, you, you penciled out the, 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 the geometric shapes yeah. mm-hmm. um, and spaces, and then it looks like you tape off and that's yep. when you start painting in. Yep, it's and just that, like that's that's when it starts to really slow down. I imagine. Yeah, have at it. Um, yeah, I I think talking about how long something takes to make is not the greatest conversation because there's always somebody who's richer, taller, smaller, mm-hmm. um, younger, older. You know, um, but they take me a while. And the other day, I mapped out how many years I'd really love to live for the rest of my life and how many paintings I can produce in that in that lifetime oh, and it's a lot fewer than I thought. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Based on how long they, on average they take. You yeah. yeah. Um, size, you know, um, if, if I kept at this pace, it's kind of, it was kind of disappointing. Mm-hmm. Does that mean after realizing that, or is, is there like impetus to adjust or tweak to speed things up or maybe uh, fuck it, just keep doing what you're doing. I have ideas and it usually takes me five or six years to like realize those ideas. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah, they'll yeah. pop into your head and you're like, I should do that. And then seven years later, we're like, that took me a little time, but I finally got there. So maybe I'll start making like small, messy paintings. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, I guess still talking about color, like last night when we were texting about, you know, what time to come over and all that. You mentioned the choices between ugly colors and cool colors mm-hmm. um, and, and those things as signifiers. And I wondered if you wanted to elaborate a little bit on that idea definitely i mean i think there's a difference between what we labels uh, colors when we label colors as you know plain or out of the tube or ugly to like sophisticated colors and Mm -hmm. and what someone like martha stewart used to do like this is the color of the season it's rusty brown or and essentially what we're talking about is class right um a way to put value on this inherently valueless thing mm-hmm. where it's just like, Oh, this, this color of pink, you know, like there was a Fanta black was just invented. Yeah. Yeah. I've been reading about that, which is fascinating. Wild stuff. And I forgot. Anish Kapoor. Anish Kapoor. He's, bought he's cornered it up. the market. And then they re- released Vanta, Vanta black too. So, and oh. then he wanted to buy that. It was even darker than, than the darkest black, which he had bought. And they're like, well, touche, we yeah. made a darker one. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's class and exclusivity, right? So like a beautiful, you know, some of my favorite color combinations are like a neutral chromatic versus something um, uh, with pure intensity, but mm-hmm. with the same value. So they, they buzz, you, you know, this yeah. trick. Yeah. Um, that's one of my favorite things to look at. But that's a little bougie, you know, like mm-hmm. it's a kind of, bo- and sometimes I want to make a painting that's straight out of the tube, red, white, blue, green, yeah. orange. And Roy G. Biv. Yeah and, yeah. and not talk about like, well, these are wonderful colors. I'm like, don't worry about the colors. Yeah. Like, but I love these colors. I like green. And I'm like, don't worry about the green. And that's a struggle for me with every painting. Hmm. Um, and within each painting, I feel like there's some relationships that have that please my art school sensibility of like this is a f- this there's humor in this color combination yeah and then in the same painting there's something really dumpy like and then I'm just gonna throw down a, a plain green sure yeah it's funny you mentioned humor I, I feel like 
you know, I know humor is important. You're you're a pretty hilarious guy, <laughs> and and I think um, you acknowledge sort of the absurdity in our pursuits in the arts and everything. And it sort of I think it sort of manifests itself in different ways in your work. Um, but even the color the color um, dialogue in these like. There's a little sense of humor in them too, for and, me as the viewer. Yeah, you and, know what I mean. And we're like, you know, we're products of a system. Yeah. And I'm definitely making some of these non-existent jokes for people like you. <laughs> it's like I hope Joey realizes this is such a dumb color, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then you look at it and you smile, and it's not like a ha ha thing, yeah. but it's just like, oh, that's wacky, you yeah. know? Like he did. Well, I don't purpose. know wacky. Like for me, it's like that's a surprise. Like to yeah, leap from right. this, these like four like maroon, lavender, white, cobalt blue into the to the things in the corner is like, you know, it's jarring and abrupt. Yeah. And I find that sort of switch or, or leap kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. And surprising. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I mean, God, I hope they're funny to somebody. But, like, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like, and it's disappointing when I make a painting that doesn't have that joke where I'm like, oh, I was playing it safe a little bit. Mm. And um, and you just have to listen to yourself in studio by yourself in those moments because the minute someone else sees it, it's no longer your own joke. Yeah. Um, so I I try to keep you know we're just trying to keep ourselves entertained. Sure. And um, and that sounds like the smallest problem in the world, but just making it fun. Like I don't really believe in the idea of like a craftsman doing the same thing over and over but like essentially that's what we do i guess yeah well i think we we adjust it enough so that we learn something or develop something or push something further so that yeah. there's now reason to tackle it again or yeah. something like that i call them like micro regressions huh. you know where it's just like uh i don't really love the idea of like primitivization or like going back to like an infant form mm -hmm. but like essentially that's where the funniness is and yeah. like so there's these small things if dumb people were younger which is like not true mm -hmm. but if people get smarter as they get older proceed then going back would make something smart uh, funny right? yeah 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 sure so they're little micro regressions yeah it's fascinating to think about color and class and that exchange and maybe even t we get their taste in there too as a mm -hmm. an indicator of class mm -hmm. and um you ever hear that quote or uh, i think hickey said dave hickey um taste is the residue of someone else's privilege <laughs> right which is kind of brilliant to yeah. think about <laughs> yeah, yeah. and like walk down that road yeah. um but i never feel guilty about taste yeah. you know i think um oh god i was thinking about what our generation could um claim as their own you know our parents were you know baby boomer hippies they had woodstock and i thought for us it would be punk music mm -hmm. but it turns out we are the the williamsburg generation right like we watched that whole thing happen and when we travel around the world that rippled to into other places more than like punk music did or rap music yeah like um, lifestyle stuff basically right? tastes uh, yeah um uh, and I think the, the most misconstrued word of our generation is hipster because yeah. I love hipsters. Like by definition, it's people who are really interested in um, things and those things might be subcultures and mm -hmm. embrace it in this fervent, like feverish way. Yeah. And we love those people. We just don't like annoying people. So 
when a lot of times when people say that word, they mean somebody who's annoying. Sure. But when I think of that word, it's like, oh, that's the people I want to be around. Yeah. And uh, when Dave Hickey, when you mentioned that Dave Hickey uh, quote, I think about that. I'm like, that sounds like something I should revolt against, but I'm into it. Yeah. And it's important to you know note that he's just a crank. Yeah. A genius crank. And like, I love him, but he's a crank and an old guy. So influential. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I'm glad you pointed out like that the origins of, of the quote unquote hipster probably start in subcultures. Yeah. And those subcultures are entirely important to, to me and my yeah. like development as a person, mm-hmm. as well as I'm sure you as well. Yeah. Um, maybe we can put art down for a second and talk about sports. And I know this is like a well-walked road for you and it's out there that you're a sports fan, but something that I, I, I think is important to point out is that, that, I think sometimes it's it, we, we define expectation if we're uh, an artist, a contemporary artist that also likes sports. I think like those two aren't necessarily they're strange bedfellows. Um, and I and I like when things define expectation. So I like that you are a sports fan, and I've known this about you. We've played basketball together. We've That's watched right. games together. We've yeah. developed drinking games around watching sports over the years. A beer bowl. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, I, I guess I just wanted to point that out. It's like, I think it's really cool when these things that, that are like sort of artists can't like sports. Right. Um, no. Yeah. Of course they can. I mean, I think what, what I th- would hope I'm interested in and my friends are, my peers are interested in is like roundabout ways to do something that we've seen done before. Yeah. But I mean, they come from the same place. My interest in sports at the very first level started because I was short and I was kind of always felt looked over in when I was a kid and in order to relate to these people I wanted I just wanted friends Mm -hmm. and I was like oh they're all going to Mets games maybe I should like know what they're talking about and you know just sit at home and watch the Mets it's like oh that's what they're talking about you know like this picture or whatever and it has to do with the art in the sense that it's also about being short and like measuring things and quantifying things and what better realm than than sports because politics and economics are richer in the sense of the data it provides you um, and the philosophies the data can show you but sports is harmless in my opinion mm-hmm. in a way I mean there's darkness there too sure but in economics and politics we're talking about real things so for me, it's really interesting to talk about a point of view through talking about a basketball player as opposed to a policy or a bill because we're saying the same things, but it has none of those triggers of like poverty or class or health. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just talking. For example, uh, not to get into the weeds, but you know, there's a, um, I call them a disciple of basketball fan who, um, embrace the 90s yeah. and Jordan and Barkley and all these greats and Bird and the M- the, the players on the NBA superstars videotape that uh, Sports Illustrated put out yeah remember that yeah our, our it's all like skate parts but for basketball players amazing right <laughs> yeah and there's correlation there between that era and skateboarding yeah yeah, we can yeah. talk about for yeah. sure um subculture there is certainly a subculture in yeah. this big thing of sports but um the disciple of someone like that versus you know the debates always come up like 
is the old as good as the new? Mm -hmm. And it depends on what religion you follow. Um, and there's certain players now that exist that follow in that religious path of Michael Jordan and certain players that don't. And that debate is always really heated and fun and mm -hmm. harmless, I hope. But then when we talk about that same philosophy in a different realm, it becomes charged, yeah. which is no fun. Yeah. Um, so I think sports, That's a good way to look at it. sports is a wonderful way to show your point of view. In, mm -hmm. in, in and it's just, you know, it's entertainment at a certain point as well to take in. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's deeper than that. But, um, and one would argue politics yeah. is less deep, and it is also entertainment. Yeah, uh, especially these days. Yeah. Um, I wanted I want to do some Knicks trivia just for fun. All right, you ready? All right. I'm ready. And these are these are these are kind of soft, so um, I'm sure you'll you'll do fine. But Trent Tucker. <laughs> uh, last time the the Knicks won the title. Oh, uh, what year? Uh, yeah. it was, uh, the Walt Frazier years. Um, the dates on it was it like seventy eight six? Nineteen seventy. Seventy five. And that was um, yeah, Walt Frazier, yeah. Phil Jackson, yeah. and they beat the Lakers. That was, I go to my, I show at a, I love my gallery, uh, I show at Marlboro Gallery now, mm -hmm. and um, the the owner of the whole shebang is uh, a French man named Pierre, and we go to basketball games together all the time because he has season tickets. Mm -hmm. At MSG? At MSG, cool. and they're good, and we'll sit there, and he'll tell me in his like beautiful French distinguished accent. He he saw those Walt Frazier years oh, wow. at the Garden. Oh wow! And and he's so knowledgeable, and he's not cranky at all. Uh -huh. And he's just like Porzingis is awesome, you know. Like he's he reminds me of Frazier, and it's such a wonderful thing to to listen to, you know. Yeah, especially for a French guy. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a culture of basketball in France, but I, like I just associate, you know, uh, soccer with Europe more That's than right. more than basketball. You in know tennis. I mean? Yeah, in tennis. Yeah. Um, Speaking of Walt Frazier, can you name a product that he has been a spokesperson for and advertised on TV for? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to say it, it was the ad was funny. Kim and Keith Hernandez, right? It was it was almost an ad for boner medicine, but it was for hair color, right? <laughs> Just for men hair yeah, treatment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like, you're going to get laid. I'm like, what is this an ad for? You yeah. know? <laughs> They're in the room with the couple. Yeah. Um, yeah, just for men, beard, yeah. beard stain. Right. What's the, what's the, um, tagline? I have no idea. Uh, I didn't look that up. Keith Hernandez, legend. Yeah. Um, three players from the Knicks that have won the NBA dunk contest. Okay. This is hard. Nate Robinson, Kenny Skywalker, current, uh, like on the Knicks. Was yeah. a Knicks representative when they competed? Uh, no, they had to be um, a Nick when they competed. Walker, Nate, Nate won three times, right? Yeah, correct. Um, Tw 2006, 2009, and 2010. Who was the third? Trick question. There wasn't a third. Ah, <laughs> you got it. Oh, that was good, Joey. You win. <laughs> um, and Kenny Skywalker was 1989. Beautiful flat top. Yeah, and also I remember short shorts with the white compression shorts went down to his knee yeah like classic late 80s style i remembered he was good. all of us when we played in high school like had that yeah you were good in high school right had um i was okay i yeah. mean for where where i was growing up i wasn't the best but yeah. i was like right below it joe's gonna be humble but i remember playing pickup with you once 
and we were having a good time yeah. and we were just was like, that like off the bowery or something like that yeah on those right, courts? Yeah, yeah. yeah the christie street courts Christie street courts and we were having a good time was just friends for a while and you were like feeding us the ball and we were laughing sky hooks and then some people rolled up for a game and we were like we'll play and they had done something disrespectful right like i don't know like scored the ball and kind of celebrated and you were like all right, forget this. And you started <laughs> to ball out on them for real. And we're like, oh, there's that Joey we heard about. You know? You're just like backing them down. Yeah. It's so funny. It's funny what will trigger that yeah. that piece of my history. And yeah. it's usually like when someone comes in and and it's like ego-driven and like something about dominance and power. And, and I like, if I can check it, I will. And I think that's a good example of me being like, okay. Well, it wasn't even Chill about <laughs> you. It was, I think someone had done something to some, like, Glenn or something that were, Glenn Baldry's a great artist. I think we were with him maybe and someone had like pushed him out of the yeah, way. Yeah, it was a bunch of art guys just yeah. like having fun and these guys came in to like play. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. sort of like blew out our fun time. Yeah. I remember <laughs> that. Yeah, and you were just like, I got this. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I guess just to wrap up the Knicks thing, um, you know, sort, we're, we're sort of speaking about eras, but do you have a favorite era of Knicks or, or maybe just like a handful of, of players that are like, these are my favorites right now. Definitely. I think the, the two weeks of Linsanity are like really important to me, f- like formatively as a human being, mm-hmm. um, especially with the context of them being such a bad team, him being Taiwanese American, the style of ball they played, the modern way they played. Um, I was lucky enough to be in close proximity of that team through Tyson Chandler. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I also love the Latrell Sprewell years. Yeah, Marcus agreed. Canby. Agreed. I saw Canby. I went to Trump Tower just to take a look um, during the election time, and Canby was crossing the street. And in passing, I was just like, "Canby, you're the best." And I said it with like that, like I wasn't like yelling at him. I was yeah. like, "Dude, whatever happened in your life, because you have ups and downs, like you are the best." Yeah. And he was like, thanks, buddy. And then we <laughs> crossed the street, and it was so funny. We crossed the street on the opposite ends, and we looked back at each other. And he was trying to figure out what kind of fan I was because mm-hmm. I was also wearing, like, a Knicks shirt and a Knicks hat. Yeah. And he was like, that guy didn't seem crazy. Yeah. He didn't yell at me. Yeah. Should I cross the street and talk to him? And my wife was like, go talk to him. Cross the street. And I was like, that's all I need. Yeah. You know, like. He's one of the best. He's my favorite Nick outside of Lynn and Sprewell. Yeah, cool. I'm a big fan of Sprewell too. I think when I think of him, I think of like um, style and substance. Like his style of play was really fun, just aesthetically to watch. Yeah. Um, and there was something about like, I, I guess like his superficial style, like how he like chose to like style his hair f- for different games and like they looked like drawings to me and I spent some time, um, for good or, you know, whether this is, you know, inappropriate or not. Like I was drawing Spreewell yeah. on like the way his body was gestured and then, He's amazing and then looking. like his, his cornrows and like yeah. the different patterns in there. Um, the just w- as sort of like an exploration, the way um, he would attack yeah. the rim, the way he would finish. And like that whole era in the nineties was about race. And mm-hmm. you know, m- one of my favorite players of all times, Allen Iverson, and not only because he was a wonderful on-court player, he was so he was a lightning rod for all these things that had to get talked about. Yeah, because we hadn't ta- we were off of the fumes of people being like, "Are you Bird or Magic?" Yeah, based off of your race, yeah. you know, or Gary right Payton, thing. yeah, who was like a little bit before him. And then Sprewell, you know, choked his white coach, and yeah. and everyone on the team had his back. And I'm like, oh, this is a story that we have to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And Carlissimo's doing great. I think they're okay now, but. 
when Spiro came to the Knicks because he was undervalued as a player after that incident, I was like, finally we have like almost a folk hero, but a hero is yeah. the wrong word, but like somebody who's more important than his production on the court. Yeah, his abilities on the court. There's something else going on. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, the, the fact that he's broke now is heartbreaking, you know? Yeah, both him and Iverson actually. Spent sort of tragic. Money. Mayweather doesn't have any money, and Mayweather. I mean, ugh, these guys are complicated guys, all of them. You May, know? Mayweather, the boxer. Yeah. Talking about now, okay. Um, I don't know. I think it's a it's a tough situation to be in, and that's a whole other mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll jump back into the studio, and I'm gonna try and describe yeah. what I'm seeing here. Yeah, sure. So on on the back wall, you have, I don't know, a hundred plus little pint, golden paint containers with different mixed colors in them mm-hmm. and they're 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 um they're they're ordered by color so there's mm-hmm. sort of an e- easy route in to get to whatever color you're looking for yeah then you have a storage rack with it looks like painting old older stuff i can see like a framed work on paper up there that yeah. looks like one of your old screen print yeah. slash when you were cutting yeah paint, like the whole like sort of lattice work thing that you were doing at the time yeah um and then you have a bunch of work uh, that is looks finished, and you mentioned these are going out for a show on the wall that you know probably going to be packed up soon. And then you have a couple work tables with brushes and things. You've got mm-hmm. your computer in the back there, mm-hmm. a bookshelf with just smaller things, just for storage shelf. Um, and um, another thing that I that I'm always checking out is people's floors in their studio. Your floor I is just cleaned up for really? you, really. Yeah. But I mean, it's it. There's something nice going on um, with all the little bits of tape that are like the refuse of you pulling yeah. the tape line off your off y- your paintings. Usually, there's like these, uh, like what are those yoga balls, like yoga size, like tape bundles tape, around. Yeah. Um, but I just cleaned up for you. But <laughs> yeah, usually it's like full of paper towels and tape and um, just like. That's it. Yeah, it's just covered yeah. the whole thing. But you're, you know, the, it's the blue painters tape and some of the green green tape. Yeah, which is another version of painters tape. Yeah. But even that, like, I think just is sort of like an interesting little moment in here that I can somehow tie back into the production of these and maybe a little bit of like what they look like mm-hmm. in terms of like these little shapes of jagged things and th- stuff like that. I know, like our floors in artist studios, like equivalent to like shoes on a person. Like you can tell everything by. Yeah, maybe. You know, and now that we're talking about it, I remember I gave a lecture at, at I think, Northeastern uh-huh. up in Boston. Yeah. And I emailed a few of my friends, you included, send me a picture of your studio floor. And I think that's what I talked oh, about, some no version way. of that. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. Anyways, yeah. um, what's a typical day in here like? Um, um, I think these things are kind of fun to hear. Yeah. So this place, I, I hate to be away from like... I got to be honest, I hate to be away from a television because um, in my house, a television's constantly going and mm-hmm. I like that stream of information. So I use this place as like action. So there's no chair with a back on it here. It's like the McDonald's philosophy, right? So I show up in, for me, p- the pretty early morning. I go to sleep at like 4 in at the n- at night. 4 a.m. 4 a.m. just because um, I'm usually writing mm-hmm. or... Um, like working on stuff mm-hmm. i stopped emailing but like it's usually writing i struggle with the uh, the words quite a bit it just takes me a long time uh-huh. does the writing take place at home as opposed to in here i try to always do the writing in one place okay so I'm, i come from the same 
um, place yeah. when I write just so I can see the evolution. If there's no control, I can't really see right. what's happening. Right. So I write at my desk at home okay. in front of my TV and, um, well, the TV's far from my desk, but I can hear it. And then um, I come in here early in the morning and I try to, I try to rip it up. You know, like I really try to like get going. And um, sometimes, like yesterday, uh, I didn't sleep well, so I'll, I'll take a, a nap underneath a painting or on the floor. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't eat in here. Uh, there's no refrigerator. There's nothing to make it uh, comfortable. Right. This is a place where paintings get made. Sure. So I'll usually spend like 10 hours in here a okay. day. And then um, on the weekends when I can. But I try to take the weekends off now that I'm getting like older and I'm trying to like not fret because there's always something to do in the sure. studio. Sure. Um, but I spend a lot of time here and it's a really private place. Um, I love having you over. Uh, I love having um, certain people over. But usually I try to get out of studio visits. Yeah. I try not to do them. Um, a lot of success happens in here, a lot of failure, a lot of waves of like doubt and like confidence. And when someone comes in, it kind of dissolves that uh, energy mm -hmm. and I have to build it up again. Yeah. Uh, it's a really private place. And I've hesitated at getting a, um, an assistant because not only do I want to occupy this place alone, I think it's important to um, think mm -hmm. for, for me personally in, in making things because they unravel so quickly. If I'm not focused and if I have a string of birthdays in a week mm -hmm. and I have to go to two birthday parties or three, if I'm lucky enough to go to that many parties, which is a blessing, but um, my thoughts unravel and it takes me too long to recover and having people around and talking about it is always a, a bit of an unraveling and showing them. Mm -hmm. So um, I have strong opinions about the, the energy of a studio, not in terms of architecture or how it's shaped or what's in it, but how you use it, mm -hmm. I think is um, important to me. But I, I'm jealous of those people who have couches and have like dogs around and their friends come through and eat takeout and then they hug and they leave and right. they, m they might look at something like the, the romanticism of like what we think Basquiat was, right? right? Like I always think that movie that Schnabel made is more influential than his actual work because it was a blueprint of all these people of our generation. I mean, we're, we were already going at that point, but that was like, I'm an artist. Mm -hmm. You know, I have people come through, drink some beer, high five, we dance to the new awesome jam mm -hmm. and I make brilliant work. Right. And for me, it's uh, quite opposite the experience. Right. It, it's quiet and not fun in that way, but I'm jealous if someone can figure that out. Sure. Um, maybe this is a good spot to talk about, um, how sometimes working on these things feels like a total disaster yeah. and slog and you're just trying to nudge it towards survival. Yeah. And, you know, on one hand, there's, there's days that I have in studio that are completely therapeutic and relaxing and I feel enriched and I'm like, I have purpose and today was a good day. That's not as often as I would like it to have right. happen. Right. Um, and then there's everything, everything below that and then very below that. Right. And, and I feel like I may have talked to you about some of this stuff before at some point, but, um, I wonder if you, if you'd be comfortable talking about like how this is challenging. I mean, these are, you know. 
let's, you know, we're not refugees and, and we, no. we're, we're, we're living pretty good lives and, yeah, yeah. and, and we're, um, we're able to like chase our pursuit, our pursuits, which is, yeah. which is a gift. Yeah. But you know, the challenges that do come up here are real. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, like how do you t- tackle those sometimes and how do you push through them and how do we not, you know, light these things on fire more often? You know what I mean? Well, I, I always think about that and I, I do feel like we all are, but myself personally are, I just feel super lucky, you know, like yeah. I've always been able to do this. I've always had support. I've always been able to have the space to work through, um, a painting or an idea or something. But the older I get, I'm realizing like everything is a skill. Um, being an amazing father and wife is a skill. Mm-hmm. You're not just, you don't necessarily work at it to make it better. You do, but that work is actually something that isn't just about work. And, and a lot of times I'll have trouble with, with, you know, making art is not fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and that word is loaded, but I think making art for me is gratifying in a way that, you know, is, is worthy of taking risks and maybe failures and of, of all sorts, failures of all sorts, sure. not, not just on a canvas or on a, with a sculpture, but, um, dealing with failure is a skill, I think. Yeah. And dealing with heartbreak and, um, challenges is a skill that you develop and, I feel lucky because when I didn't have that skill, I had support. Mm-hmm. And now that I feel like I'm understanding and I have a perspective on what failure means, um, I can handle it internally better than I could of in my 20s. Right. Do you think it's a maturity thing or is it just like an experience thing? Can some people arrive at that space sooner in life? I think so. Yeah. Um, it takes me a while to do everything. Um, but I, I do think that some people are better equipped with that. Sure. And it has nothing to do with, you know, we talked about class before we talked about, I mean, I think opportunity has a lot to do with it. I think space is everything. Um, finding the right people, man, like that's everything. Yeah. You know, for sure. Um, yeah, I agree. And, and like failure and fucking up and coming out on the other side or, or just those things as a driving force to like, improve upon or like, okay, clearly I need to make an adjustment somewhere. Like those are important. So I identify with that stuff too. It's like that, uh, that eighties movie special effect where like that Woody Allen, where someone's talking and then the ghost of himself steps aside and looks at him uh, on the movie line or something like that takes work and that's really important. And that's what makes Woody Allen or that scene so wonderful in any hall. But that's constantly what we're doing, yeah. right? Uh, not only as artists, but like, it's like, I don't know. If I didn't like any other job I had, I would hope I would have the support where I could develop that skill yeah. to be like, this ain't so bad. Yeah, man, yeah. Um, support. Um, I've always uh, observed that um, you have a pretty dynamic group of people around you. You, you have visual artist friends, you have writer friends, you have musician friends, you have small business owner friends, um, you've got design people in your life. So you have like a lot of people that are creative in different capacities. Um, 
and I wonder if you could talk about like how they have helped you um, and how you've helped them in return and like just how, or how sort of that has that support system that you've developed yeah. around you sort of like, you know, yeah. pushed you along. Well, I mean, it, maybe that's not the right word. Push. It's not pushing. No, it's literally pushing. Is it? You know, like there's certain people I have in my life that I search out that I know will push me mm-hmm. um, even within an hour of seeing them. Yeah. Um, I think I have difficulty hanging out with other artists. Mm hmm. Um, on, on a, like, on a real friend level, because I feel like it's, it's too, it reminds me too much of, like, my shortcomings, you know, Hmm. where, like, I think we're always trying to compare apples to apples, or, you know, like, I have so many artist friends, uh, that are so good, and to be around them, like, what am I doing? I, I got to get back to studio. Yeah. You know, and is it like a competitive thing subconsciously even or something? I mean, or like I'm a measuring a, thing or something like measuring up against so-and-so, you know, to go back to like sports, you know, it, there's always an, uh, uh, a grain of competitiveness in something. Mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with me personally of being like a child of immigrants. Mm-hmm. My, my parents being like, you have no advantage other than working hard. Right. That's your only thing and if no one's going to give you anything um but i i do believe i've been given a lot um just through them and just through this path of going to art school and living in new york and growing up in new york i've been able to meet all these different people who have all these interesting paths and i've just been lucky i think and i think everyone is probably lucky i just don't know anyone else's life you know but i have a lot of people with multiple disciplines that push me like i was I hadn't seen my friend who owns a, a fashion line uh, store slash store um, for a while. And we sat down, we were joking, we were talking about music. And then he was just like, make me something. And I was like, I will. And he's like, no, you always say that. Yeah. Like, literally make me something in the next week. And he was just like, we always say this, yeah. you know? And I hadn't, and it was like a year ago. Yeah. But it really pushed me um, because everyone has a different process like i guess me and you probably have the same process in that you know we make we have if we're lucky enough to have two shows or a show a year mm-hmm. we work really hard we try to flesh it out um we look at it i mean some people like fashion designers and especially writers i have a writer friend who for a while at five o'clock we get nervous i'm like what's up 5 like, p.m yeah mm-hmm. he's like this is usually when i deliver for the mm. next day for print and um and he's like it's weird i I don't have to do that anymore, but automatically, chemically, he perks yeah. up. He's been conditioned yeah. to, like, to like a chemical release happens right yeah. at that time of the day. Yeah, it's wild. Like when you have a car in New York and you automatically be like, did I, where did I park my yeah, car? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? Um, yeah, I think, I think that like I've always like, uh, I, I believe in surrounding our, ourselves with like a range of people mm-hmm. um, as like just a healthy thing to do. Um so I've appreciated that and, and like noticed that with you. But I also like connect it back to when we were students and like, you know, at the start I was talking about how you like jumped around from place to place. Like, in, like there was a real curiosity there to like learn new skills and try new things and collide two ways of working or like collaborating with yeah. this person, you know, um, I, there's a, there's, there's something there. Some, yeah. Sometimes I feel like it has to do with like, like this cliche of like self-loathing right like I kind of 
I'm attracted to and run away from things that remind me of myself. Yeah. Like when I see someone who makes paintings like mine, I'm just like trash. And then I save all the images and look at them yeah, yeah, yeah. and I know exactly what I don't like about them. Uh-huh. But when I pull back, I'm like, I love them. Yeah. They're so good. Yeah. You know? And, uh, that, that emotion, unfortunately or fortunately goes through in my social life in that, like if someone reminds me of me too much, I might like, uncon- like subconsciously lose kind of interest. Hmm. You know, yeah. if someone rolled up to me and was like, yo, I'm so into the Knicks. I make geometric paintings <laughs> and I, I even talk like you and I'm into yeah. Seinfeld. I'd be like, I play in a band. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I make, you know, like weird music with machines and like I pretend I'm this and I pretend I'm that. I'm like, I, you're, you know, like I really like you, but I hate you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, I don't know. I always joke about that in my paintings being like, the, the reoccurring um, uh, motif of like a mirror. Yeah. You know, it's like, I just hate those things. Yeah. It's like anything reflective is really annoying. Mm-hmm. It's nice to hear. I feel like that's like, that's some great awareness when you catch someone that makes work that occupies a similar space as your own. There's like this sort of like, but at the same time, wait a minute, I should, I kind of like it. Or yeah. like, there's something there where like we have something in common. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's like a, um, an awareness I think is nice to hear because I, I mean I have younger friends artist friends that, that they're always they're just caught up and, and like I'm guilty of this when I was younger too like yeah. stop biting my shit or yeah, like, yeah. meanwhile I'm biting 10 other people oh you know God, it's like yeah. how it sort of rolls out but yeah. to just sort of be like yeah I mean this sometimes happens yep. and you know I mean mm-hmm. that's nice to hear I mean the 20s are such a minefield I don't know how we made out of made it out of there you know yeah. like going back I'm just like to be able to survive emotionally from your 20s is just wild and then if you want to talk about that in the context of art just like oh god just burn everything i made in when i was younger and then maybe if i'm lucky enough in 10 years to look back now i'm like burn everything in my you know that era but um i don't know uh yeah i mean there's no new ideas but there are some new combinations Mm -hmm. and that's what i mean by like we're kind of like these um written programs yeah where uh we're all a set of rules but when we disobey certain rules or combine other rules um that's all that's all you know like what jasper johns like take something do something to it do something again yeah 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 cut it in half turn it upside down exactly um do you remember the last great piece of culture that you saw whether it saw whether it was uh another artwork or a record that you listened to a book that you read or I mean so much I mean just to rattle them off like even this month um I love this rapper singer named Lil Peep um that the kids love he's young he sings he's like his influences are like my my chemical romance and Mm -hmm. and Lil B so I can't stop listening to him I think he's pretty incredible really sad braggy songs that are conflicted he's white um Really interesting from? stuff. Uh, I believe Long Island. Okay. I think Long Island. Uh, I might have that wrong. But um, I saw Dunkirk this weekend. That movie. Christopher Nolan yeah. is my favorite. Uh, my two favorite directors are Sofia Coppola and Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. I think they're just incredible. Everything they do, just like yeah. how they get there, you know. Um, uh, 
what else art wise it's been kind of slow this summer just because the summer slows down mm-hmm. but elizabeth kelly had that show at matthew marks that was amazing oh Felix gonzalez torres at zwerner uh, my favorite artwork of all time is the two clocks next to each other that run simultaneously okay i think that's probably the best artwork i can think of huh well why that one um it has the emotional content that i'm looking for in art um it has that melancholy it has that dumbness of just like two found objects that we can just buy yeah purchase they're, they're these plain uh, school clocks and um you know it's about death and life and time and and uh you know rates in which things yeah. change yeah yeah you can apply a lot of stuff to two clocks on the wall it's so that are synced up yeah it's a it's a shock it's like dead in your tracks kind of artwork in my opinion mm-hmm um, Did you check out Marclay's The Clock when it was being screened here? I think it was incredible. Yeah. In- he, I feel bad for him, right? Because he made something so good. Uh-huh. I'm sure he's stoked, and I'm sure he's happy. <laughs> Christian Marclay is probably doing great. But that was so good. Yeah. It was so good that I was just like, what do you do from here? Yeah. Do you, like, help starving children? <laughs> you know, like... Yeah where do you go do yeah. you rescue dogs yeah you know yeah. um did you sit through the whole thing no i just right. it, well, for a while yeah but it was too much um i remember our our friend from RISD, christy Krakas, caracas 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 uh, <laughs> um did this uh black sabbath video piece remember that oh the bar wait was it the bar fight no he, he had asked all his animation friends to animate one minute of oh yes black, i have seen that of black sabbath yeah. album yeah i think it was paranoid yeah and he screened it in his apartment and it was jaw-dropping yeah it, it it assaulted you with so much information at such a rate where you're just like i don't know if i should throw a brick through a window or take a poop you know like i don't <laughs> yeah. know like yeah. it's overwhelming how great this thing is yeah and um it had some amazing artists in it but it was like this spirit of uh, Fort Thunder that we love so much yeah. and Providence of this this hyper um, pace of wonderful things flying at you constantly. Mm-hmm. And, and many people involved. Many people. And it was, you know, I don't really like the, the idea of a collective or in 2017, I don't think that idea is as um, fun as it was maybe in the 70s and 80s. But they were a group of people with a single mind. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted, to, I remember they asked me to live there when I was um, finishing up dorm life. Fort Thunder? Yeah. Okay. And I knew what it would do to me and my artwork. And I wanted kind of to experience that. But like, I like a clean bed. Yeah. I like showers. Yeah. Um, and they were amazing, but they slept in bunk beds. They um, At that point, Brian Chippendale was working with Dead Roadkill. So there was roadkill in that loft. Yeah. Um, for, for his amazing maggots um, art pieces. Yeah. Where he would fill pinatas with roadkill. I've been talking to Brian about doing one of these. He's amazing. Yeah. It's going to be fun. And it's, how interesting is it that he uh, is a social media guy? I know, right? I just saw a lightning bolt in Red Hook in my neighborhood a uh-huh. couple weeks ago. Uh-huh. I hadn't seen him since school. Talk about a weird feeling. I mean, <laughs> but it was great. Him? They played on a stage. I'd never seen that before. So Yeah, because yeah. they usually just played in the middle of warehouse floors yeah, yeah. on purpose because they would get offered stage gigs and they're like, that's not what we do. Yeah. Um, but now they're 
they're adults now. Yeah. You know? I saw yeah. a picture of Brian with a suit and tie. Yeah, he's got a kid. He's got a kid yeah. with another great artist, and Brian Gibson made that amazing video game. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're both still in Providence. Are they? Yeah. That's incredible, mm-hmm. man. Um, I mean, we you just sort of went down a little list of things, like pieces of culture that you're exciting, excited on. Um, are those separate or connected to the things that, keep you driving forward, keep you pushing or like, what, is there anything on that list? I mean, this is sort of dubious territory, right? There's like, there's like a school of thought, like this is private information. And Oh no. We ask ourselves like what we are comfortable revealing and that sort of thing. I don't know what, where you fall in on those, but um, this has to do with my answer. Um, You know, I, I remember leaving Dunkirk and I was turning to the person who saw it with me. I'm like, I love that movie because I love emotional hardcore music. And uh, I grew up on, like, Rites of Spring and Fugazi and Captain Jazz. And when I describe that to somebody who may not have been into it, I'm just like, it was the rawest, loudest emotion thrown at you at such a rate where there was no space to breathe. Um, These tight three or four minute songs, Dashboard Confessional, I really love. It doesn't even have to be loud, but this this aggressive kind of confessional thing, no pun intended. is what I loved about Dunkirk, where I'm like, you felt sad, nervous, happy, triumphant. It was, I mean, I love Christopher Nolan because he makes like these overwrought kind of statements. Like, I loved Interstellar. I thought that was one of my favorite movies ever. And it was so like painfully awkward Mm -hmm. for someone who's not ready for something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, or even in Inception when the little top that spins is the key to this whole puzzle, right? And that's an emotional key to his childhood. Um, And all these puzzles that I make in these paintings are annoying in terms of like time and like spatial qualities within the canvas and what I'm trying to tell you, but they're all over the top with emotion because I mean, this goes back into me counting how many of these paintings I can make for the rest of my life. Yeah. It's like, better pick it up. If you're thinking about your dog, you better talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Because I, when I, you know, hopefully if I'm lucky enough to die and I'm aware that I'm dying, I want to be like, said it all, man. Yeah. It's like, I really miss my mom. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and that's why I love certain artworks like Little Peep, mm. um, My Chemical Romance, which who are old now. Um, but I love seeing that stuff. And I love heady, complicated, um, coded stuff as well. But I'm really drawn to um, my childhood, which was listening to Minor Threat. Yeah. Um, which sounds awkward now because a lot of adults say that. But sometimes when they describe it, I think they're talking about style. Um, but I'm talking about emotionally because I, right. you know, I, m- my favorite record of all time is Paul Simon's Graceland. <laughs> and that's, it has emotion, but it doesn't have the same emotion. Um, it has my mom's era, uh, um, uh, my mom's context. Yeah, yeah, you know? my parents as well. And, sure. and still to this day, I listen to that record like once a month. Yeah. But when I heard when you know when I was lucky enough to bump into an older kid who gave me that minor threat, ten inch, it blew my socks off. Not only because I'd never heard anything like it, I never heard anything tell it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talked to my dad a lot about it at the time, who was a writer. And he was like, you should pursue this. This is a lifetime of, of interest. Like, you never have to let this go. You, yeah. don't have to let, you don't ever have to outgrow this. 
and that's why he never let me have a, an animal growing up because he's like you can't handle it right. you know yeah. that's great yeah um well i feel like we've 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 covered some ground yeah and this is like a, a nice place to to round it out um yeah really thankful for the time and, and for your generosity and, oh, and you, allowing John. me into this, this yeah. sacred space. And I'm a big fan of the pod, man. I oh, love it. I yeah, love thanks, it. Thanks, man. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, your work is, it's been a, a, like a real pleasure to watch it grow and develop and become this amazing thing. And, and thanks, man. I'm a super fan. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm always after it and, I, and I'm looking forward to the next 10 years. We should do a trade. Yeah, man. Let's do yeah. it. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> thanks, Joey. we've made it to the end a quick reminder that listeners can learn more about this project and the artists featured by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com you can also find the series and subscribe in itunes thank you for listening and check back soon for a new episode